Welcome to week three and the finale of our Christmas at the Movies sermon series. It has been an awesome way to kind of ring in the holiday season, and we so look forward to celebrating with so many of you in person next week at our Christmas uh, Sunday on the 19th with PC Kids Performance and all kinds of fun stuff. We look forward to seeing you there. Uh, Today, we focus in on the movie, the 1946 classic film, It's a Wonderful Life. The writer of the original script of this film tried to get it picked up as a short story and make it into a movie, but it was going nowhere. And he was rejected time after time. So he decided to make it into a Christmas card. Um, And so he wrote out the short story, sent out to all of his contacts, all of his friends, and he thought to himself, it's too good of a story to just keep to myself. So he sent it to everyone he knows. And one person shared it with another person and it got picked up by three different movie companies. Uh, When Frank Capra discovered the short story, he bought the rights to it and all the movie scripts for it for $10,000 and the rest is history. It's a Wonderful Life was nominated for five Oscars and it didn't win any. But the film has since been recognized by the American Film Institute as one of the 100 best American films ever made and placed number one on their list of most inspirational American films of all time. Frank Capra, the director who made the movie, said, I thought it was the greatest film I ever made. Better yet, I thought it was the greatest film anybody ever made. Now, I don't know about that, but it's a pretty great movie. Uh, I guess I've known about it all of my life. It's been on television every year since I can remember, but really, I never really sat down and watched it until about eight or nine years ago. Uh, Apparently, old black and white 1946 era sentimental films don't really appeal to young people. You need to have a few grays before you are really able to cherish and adore this movie. It's a Wonderful Life tracks the fortunes or misfortunes of a person named George Bailey played by Jimmy Stewart, the unsung beloved hero of Bedford Falls, whose every attempt to leave what he perceives as a humdrum existence in the small town is stunted for various reasons. And as a child, George grew up selfless, risking his own life to save his brother's life uh, when his brother fell through the ice. And he jumped in and saved him and lost hearing in one of his ears, but he saved his brother. As a young adult, he had big dreams. And then he meets a girl. Check out this scene. I know what I'm gonna do tomorrow and the next day and next year and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm gonna see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm gonna build things. I'm gonna build airfields. I'm gonna build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm gonna build bridges a mile long. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Barry. I'll take it. Am I talking too much? Yes. Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? Want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. Hey. George has big dreams. 
He knows what he's going to do. He knows where he's going to be. He knows where he's going to travel. But this is not a story of dreams. It is a story of broken dreams. Soon after he says this to Mary, he gives up his dreams of traveling the world and going to college to stay at home and manage Bailey Building and Loan after his father passes away suddenly. So George stays and works hard and helps honest, hardworking people achieve their own American dream, buying their own home. He marries Mary and they have children. And despite knowing that he had been forced into a job that he never chose for himself, George is hardworking and generous hearted. During his career, he's offered a promising business promotion, promising impressive wages, uh, the, the best house in town, holidays to Europe. And he's offered this by the arch rival Potter who seeks to buy the building and loan building so that he could have a monopoly on the whole town. But George rejects this offer because of the principles and respect he has for his own father and family's values. Noble as his decision seems, George becomes increasingly embittered, hardened, and angry. He never leaves Bedford Falls. He has four children and he watches his friends achieve great things. George sees only wasted opportunities and regrets. Everything around him, it just feels like life is passing him by. All of these lofty expectations, hopes, dreams are dashed in the ho-hum life of Bedford Falls. This resentment turns to desperation when George's absent-minded uncle misplaces $8,000, leaving the company in a hopeless situation. And George loses it on Uncle Billy. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? Do you realize what this means? It means bankruptcy. It means scandal. It means prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. George then sees no way out of this scenario. So he goes to Mr. Potter's, his business rival, the cruel Mr. Potter. But all he can offer as collateral to save the day is his own $15,000 life insurance. Potter chuckles and says, George Bailey, you're worth more dead than alive. A blizzard comes through Bedford Falls and George in a storming rage pushes away his own wife and children. He gets hopelessly drunk at a local bar where he's punched and scorned and alone. At the pinnacle of the movie, George looks back at his life as little more than wasted potential. His huge boyhood dreams of becoming an adventurer have now amounted to nothing. And while his vision to escape the mold of his family's seemingly insignificant small town traditions, he becomes bitter, angry, alone on Christmas Eve in a bar. And it is there where George Bailey gets honest with himself and with God. Check out this scene. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Glad you come. Oh, How about some of that good spaghetti? We got everything. Say love you, Ben. 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 Say love you, Ben.
Dear Father in heaven, I am not a praying man, but if you're up there, show me the way. Please show me the way. I watched this exact scene on YouTube this week, and I was mesmerized by the comments on the video itself. One person wrote, my absolute favorite part of the movie what I love most about it is that you could show this scene to anyone around the world with no context or subtitles and they'd understand what he's going through just by looking at his eyes. It is a universal human feeling and Jimmy Stewart portrayed it painfully true. Another person wrote, God, I felt that. As we reach the end of 2020 and this wretched year, a lot of us can relate to his despair today, to better days. Another wrote, this is me right now. If anyone has a prayer for me, I'll take it. These people, strangers from all over the world, moved to write something, to comment on a YouTube video. Just like George Bailey in the movie, their souls are reaching out to something beyond themselves in a moment of desperation. Jimmy Stewart said that during the making of this film, something happened to him that had never happened in any other film he had ever been a part of. He said, as I spoke those words, I felt the loneliness, the hopelessness of people everywhere who had nowhere to turn in my eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. It was something that wasn't planned at all, but the power of that prayer, the realization that our Father in heaven is there to help the hopeless had reduced me to tears. It is said that the angle was wrong in, while filming this and the director asked Jimmy Stewart, could you do that scene again? And Jimmy replied, no, I don't think I can. And convinced that he is worth more dead than alive, George goes to the bridge in that winter blizzard and stares at the watery depths below. George is rescued by the intervention of a lovable, bumbling guardian angel named Clarence Oddbody, who has come to Bedford Falls in answer to George's prayer. Now, although the theology in this movie isn't 100% accurate, they did get this right. Prayer fetches angels. And Clarence has come to show George that his life is worth living and to perhaps earn his wings in the process. Clarence jumps into the water, convinced that if he is drowning, 
George would do what he had done all those years ago and jump in the water to save the life of someone else. George does this, just as he had saved Harry's life many years ago. And as they are drying off from their dip in the cold river, George mentions that the world would have been a better place without him and that he wishes he had never been born. Clarence decides to grant this wish and he proceeds to show George Bailey how very different the lives of his family, his friends, and his town of Bedford Falls would be had he never been born. Clarence the guardian angel says, you've been given a great gift, George, a chance to see what the world would be like without you. And as Clarence and George travel through this alternate reality, they observe how much worse off so many people would be without George. Clarence reminds George that one man's life touches so many others. When he's not there, it leaves an awfully big hole. George comes to realize that although he never fulfilled his boyhood dreams, he was far more significant to others than he had previously thought. In the alternate life, Mary, George's wife, George's love, is a lonely spinstress. His younger brother, Harry, is dead. Clarence explains, your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. George replies angrily, that's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got a Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved every man on that transport. The angel says, every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. George discovers that his uncle, Billy, is in an insane asylum because of the failed family business. And George also discovers that Mr. Potter owns the entire town and it has been transformed from the idyllic Bedford Falls into Pottersville, an unrefined course place filled with dubious looking bars. Only then George understands that his life had made a difference. What seemed to him at the time like a series of difficult, meaningless, frustrating sacrifices had actually created true meaning, a truly wonderful life. Clarence declares, you see, George, you've really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? So George runs back to the bridge where his strange nightmare began. And he begins praying, Clarence, Clarence, help me, Clarence. Get me back. Get me back. I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please, I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. When George realizes that he is back to reality, back to his real life, he runs through town toward his house, passing all of the things that he had just despised and he greets them instead now with delight. Hello, Bedford Falls, Merry Christmas. Hello, movie house, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Emporium. Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building and loan. The very building that he had dreaded, now he seeks delight in. If that was us, if we too had gotten a glimpse of life without us, and we came back, and you came back, and you went through the streets of your town, wherever you might be, You'd be saying, Merry Christmas, Fresno. Merry Christmas, Fallon. Merry Christmas, Columbus. Merry Christmas, St. Mark Grocery Store. Merry Christmas, Blackstone Avenue. 
And in the most powerful culmination of perhaps any movie I've ever seen, George Bailey burst through the door of his own house, searching for his family. Check out this final clip. Mr. Bank Examiner? How are you? Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. Reporters, where's Mary? Have you seen my wife? Mary, 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 Kids! Kids, Janie! Janie, Tommy! Oh, look at you. Oh, I could eat you up. Where's your mother? She went looking for you. With Uncle she... Billy. Zuzu, Zuzu, my little ginger snap, how do you feel? Fine. Not a smidge of temperature. Not a smidge of temperature. <laughs> ah, hallelujah. Hello. George. George, Mary. darling. Where Mary. George, darling. Where are you? Oh, oh George. Oh, Come in, Uncle Billy. Everybody in here. George. George Mary did it. She told yeah. some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions. Just said, George in trouble. And tell me you didn't like a spread like that. Another run on the bank. Here, George. Merry Christmas. I wouldn't have a roof over my head if it wasn't for you, George. Just a minute. Just a minute. Mr. Martini, how about some As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> why this movie is so inspirational. Each successive moment becomes more powerful. He sees his town, he's overjoyed. He sees his home, he's overjoyed. He sees his kids, he's overjoyed. He sees Mary. Then everyone in town chips in to give him money. And then his little brother arrives, it's so beautiful. And throughout his life, George lived by a creed that placed human life, human others, human needs above riches. And as a result, his real wealth was only found in family and friends, and so is ours. His brother comes in and declares, to my brother George, the richest man in town. Watch this movie each year, each Christmas, and then for the next 10 Christmases. 
George Bailey is you and George Bailey is me. He's everyone who has ever put his own plans on hold for a minute, an hour, a day, a month, a lifetime because the needs of another cried more loudly. He's everyone that has ever been in a predicament bigger than himself or herself and can't imagine a way out. He's everyone that has ever despaired of victory and believed for a moment that his or her life and work is meaningless. He's everyone that ever believed the world would be better off without him. He's everyone that grace has ever looked down upon and miraculously plucked from an insurmountable circumstance and placed safely on the other side. George is everyone who has discovered that true riches don't come from a large bank account, don't come from beautiful homes or nice cars, but that the prestige that flows from men's hearts is far sweeter than the prestige that flows from envy. Isn't that what this season should remind us of? This movie shows us that the measure of our humanity has nothing to do with power, position, or possessions, but how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. What do I say? What do I, what do I preach? I, just, I think the story is itself the sermon. And so I'll just ask questions. When you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you think about? During the day, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? And as you fall asleep at night, what tends to dominate your thoughts? And now more than likely, the answer to all of these questions is the same. And that is your reason for living. A football coach might think about winning a championship all day long, and that's their reason for living. A novelist might think all day and night about how to finish their book, and that is their reason. A parent might say that he or she thinks all day about their children and taking care of them, and that might be their reason for living. Others might have more immodest goals. They think about food all day, or sex, or money, or their problems, or their next drink, or their career. Whatever you think about all day long is your reason for living. And so the next question is, is it a good reason? Here's an easy way to tell. Ask yourself, is it worth dying for? Is your job worth dying for? Is money worth dying for? Is what you're living for worth dying for? Because if you're what you're living for isn't worth dying for, then it's probably not worth living for either. Jesus, when he came to earth 2,000 years ago and grew up to be a man and showed us who God is, what God is like, he talked about this world, this life. He didn't come here and just talk about heaven and the pearly gates and chubby angels playing a harp on a cloud. No, he, he brought us back into the real concrete nitty gritty of this world. It's as, almost as if Jesus is saying that if you can't appreciate the gift of life I have given you in this life, then you will not be able to appreciate the gift of life I'm giving you in the next this rope that just came up on the screen. Uh, pretend it just goes on forever and ever.
okay? Around the universe several times over and then back again. It just goes on and on. But this little red section here, yeah, this is your life. This is you born and your death. You've got a few short years here on earth and you've got eternity somewhere else. The point I'm trying to make is not, man, eternity is a long time, so you better go to heaven because hell sucks. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that because we are given such a brief life here on earth, and it can be taken from us at any time because life is so short, let's make it beautiful. Let's make it count. Let's live it for others and let's live it for God. Let's not live for ourselves. Let's reevaluate everything. And that's really what repent means. Repent means to rethink everything. And to, to instead of living the American dream in pursuit of what we can acquire, we live to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to the world. That is the call of the Christ follower. That is the call of the Christ follower, not just this Christmas season, but in every season. Could we repent of our consumerism? Could we repent of our greed, repent of our materialism? And may we appreciate and be able to see the wonderful life that God has given us. Wherever you are listening, wherever you are watching, um, whether it's in Ohio or Virginia or Nevada or the Philippines or in the UK, wherever you are watching, your life is a wonderful life. Hear that. I believe that's what the Spirit's telling us. Your life is a wonderful life. May the Spirit of the living God give us eyes to see it and to see what we have in Jesus already, this life, here, now. God, help us to see it and help us to live the life of love you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is Christmas Sunday. We've got an amazing service planned here in Fresno, California, if you live in the area. And then the following week, Christmas Eve and December 26th is all online, online only. And so if you are listening to this and you're watching this online, maybe that's your jam anyway. Um, but uh, we're going to have some more people joining you online for uh, Christmas weekend. It's going to be incredible. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in person or online next week for Christmas Sunday on the 19th. Peace in the Middle East.